Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. She's back. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have Carrie Sheffield, Senior Policy Fellow at Independent Women's Forum, also earned a master's in public policy from Harvard University, concentrating in business policy. Ms. Sheffield, good to have you back on the Indisputable. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me back, Dr. Ishii. Absolutely. Okay. We're going to chop it up about national debt as well as the Build Back Better plan. Um, and I don't want to presume what you know or believe about those items. So if you would, give us your sentiment. Sure, thank you, Dr. Rishi. And I know all your viewers love me. I love you all too. <laughs> I just want to give you yes. nothing but love. And I have nothing but love for you. Even though we disagree, we're going to disagree about this. So the feeling I, is mutual. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you. Um, so yeah, my take is that this is going to do lots of things to hurt the most vulnerable among us. And it's also gonna hurt our children and our grandchildren. So first of all, inflation is hitting people across the board. We're seeing record levels of inflation. People, you know, some people got pay raises this year. All of the pay raises, according to Treasury and all the government statistics we have for business, show that those raises were eaten up by inflation. And the number one cause for inflation, this is according to the American people, according to polling by Harvard University, along with the former pollster for Bill Clinton, they found the number one reason why people say we have inflation in America is government spending and the Treasury going in and doing their buybacks. So this is a big problem for us to pile on. 3.5 more trillion dollars, but I'll get into the problem that 3.5 trillion, that's actually a false title. It's actually more like 5 trillion once you look at the expiration dates of these programs. Because the government accounting for when you when you mark up a bill, it's supposed to be 10 years. A lot of these programs that Build Back Better wants to put in expire after three years. So it makes that price tag look rosier and cheaper. But once you once you start a program, as Ronald Reagan says, the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. A lot of these programs are gonna keep going. And once you extend it in that full 10 years, it's $5 trillion. Now let me tell you something, our current government debt right now today, it's $28.8 trillion. And I think you'll, you and I will both agree that Donald Trump, the Trump administration, they put on a lot of debt, and when it comes to Republicans and spending, I had a lot of problems. I think there was some hypocrisy going on there. I questioned the Trump Council of Economic Advisors chairman about this. I said, why so much debt right now? Their answer was, it was during COVID, it was a pandemic, it was a war situation. They said, we're doing a war on COVID. But the circumstances now are very different. You had 3% that's that's a, that's a lot of people, 3% of the American people quit last year. This is according to government statistics, it's called the quit rate. And the quit rate means people feel more confident because they know that they have leverage in the labor market. So the labor market is much tighter. And so we don't need the spending, we don't need it right now. And guess who inflation hurts the most? It hurts black, brown, elderly and poor households the most. So this is the opposite of what we need. All right, I appreciate the wordiness of that. I will let you know that the individual you spoke to, the conservative who was on the Economic Council, he in fact lied to you, okay? And let me expose the lie right here. You do know that Donald Trump holds the record for modern day presidents increasing the national debt. You are aware of that, correct? Sure, you're right. 
Okay, and Republicans failed to hold him accountable when he inflated the national debt, ballooned it to a place of damn near 30 freaking trillion dollars, which was an increase of 39.7% of the debt at that time. Broke every single record known to every American president, and he was not held accountable by Republican leadership. They did not mention anything about debt ceilings, they increased it for him. The national debt, they signed off on anything he proposed, and you all are supposed to be fiscally conservative. Now, you are a trained individual based on your background in education and your policy understanding. When we talk about inflation, inflation is not connected to a right now scenario. It takes years for the inflation market to impact everyday citizens. It's called the Fisher equation. And I'm sure you learned this in your fancy studies at Harvard. The Fisher equation looks at how the gradual increase of everyday items or even purchases like homes and the interest rates, how they impact the everyday American. Well, that doesn't happen. As a cause and effect relationship in a short time, there's this room between the inflation and the action that caused the inflation. Well, you go back to the massive spending under Donald J. Trump. You don't think him breaking every record to increase the national debt, which is money that we have to now pay down on with interest. You don't think his administration is at least partially, if not primarily, to blame. For the for the situation dealing with inflation now, so that's my first question. The word primarily, that's you know we'd have to go through and look at the calculations because primarily is either the biggest number or 51%. But there are so many variables. If you're trying to say this is the biggest variable, Donald Trump, I don't think that that's true. How much do you think Trump influenced what you're talking about right now? You do at least concede he has influenced it somewhat, right? Absolutely, and you and I both agree, and this is this is a huge problem. And and I would have loved to see Democrats pushing back on Trump specifically on the debt, but I didn't hear that as well. I would have- That's not true, Democrats did push back on the debt. They signed off on it. They pushed back on it. But the, but the point is today, there's a great website, the usdebtclot.org. The debt per citizen today is $86,730. And the debt per taxpayer, because there are a lot more citizens than taxpayers, $228,999. So yes, even though you and I both agree that the Trump administration were big contributors to the problems we have with the debt. I hope you will agree with me that it will be irresponsible to layer on $5 trillion more. And that's in addition to the $1.5 trillion that's in that quote unquote bipartisan infrastructure bill. So we're talking about $6.5 trillion in new spending while the debt is this way. And the inflation, yes, I'm sure Trump had things to do with this, absolutely. But the fact of the matter is, Worst of COVID, thank God, is behind us. So we don't need this level of emergency spending the way we had under Trump. Okay, so let me make sure you know the numbers. Trump had already broken the record before COVID. So just know that, number one. So you cannot blame his record spending and increasing the national debt on COVID-19. That's why I said the economists that spoke to you lied to you. And you gotta check these guys out. And you can look at a simple bar chart. Uh, to show exactly how the spending happened month to month under Donald Trump. Let me also bring to your attention uh, because you talk about the Build Back Better plan, right? And how this adds to that debt, it increases our spending. Well, yes, 
And it is supposed to because it is an investment into human capital, into people to stabilize individuals, not only by way of job surety, but also training, equity in the marketplace. Making sure that the cost to have childcare is lower, making sure the cost of education decreases. All of these dynamics, while they are not considered economic policies, they contribute to the economy by way of training and protecting workers to remain in their job. You talk about the quit rate, you also have an underemployment rate of over 20%, especially in black and brown communities. Well, that's a problem because that means that while they have technical employment, their employment cannot pay the bills, not based on whatever inflation may come or simply the regional cost of living in that local area. So how do you secure them? You secure them by creating job surety methodologies. You secure them by making sure they have access to affordable or even no cost training. And you secure them by making sure there are anti-discriminatory policies in the Fortune 400, 500 companies they work for. That's how you protect the workforce. So while you see this as simply an add on, spending add on, people like myself who actually get granular with the details. We see this as an investment that pays back in dividends. Let me give an example. If you extend the child tax credit expansion, okay? That's under one of these plans, right? That's something that Republicans used to talk about, right? It's common sense, all right? You got working adults, they need to make sure they have some subsidies here. Under Donald Trump, one of the greatest things he did to greatest evils he did to the American taxpayer is to eliminate certain deductions for those who were on the lower economic stratosphere. Uh, and never was held accountable for that. So you tell me, you don't think this is an investment into the stabilization and future of the American worker? No, I don't. I think what it's actually gonna do is inflate prices for all of us. And there's a really interesting chart by an economist with the American Enterprise Institute. And what he showed was that the more the government is involved in anything, be it housing, hospital services, college tuition and fees, childcare and nursing care, the more government intervenes and pours US taxpayer money. This is money that's not created in the real marketplace. It's money that was created by hardworking private sector workers to go into public spending. That's not real money, that's that's basically trading the US dollar like it's monopoly money because it's money that was created by someone else and then taken. And so what happens is there's zero incentive to drive down the cost. So let me give you an example on this. College tuition and fees and college textbooks. This is according to this chart, this data from American Enterprise Institute from a professor with the University of Michigan. He found that overall inflation since 2000 went up by about 60%. But college tuition fees and textbooks, this is something if we want to help the middle class, education is a big reason, a big factor for that. That jumped up by around 160%. So you have this one sector, education, higher education, that is exceedingly higher than the cost of inflation for everything else. And the reason why is because you have more government involvement. The more you have government involvement with the loans and basically there is no incentive because there's no response, there's no responsibility to the private market. So the more bring in government intervention. The same thing with hospital services. Hospital services were 200% more expensive today compared to 20 years ago. That's 
140% more than the average rate of inflation. So what I am all for creating a social safety net. My parents were on welfare when I was younger. I used Medicaid when I was younger. There is a time and a place, I absolutely agree with you. But the problem with this package and this plan is it's not targeted. It's not targeted to the most needy. It's not targeted to people, Look, for example, daycare. This bill could be giving taxpayer subsidies daycare to families who are making $200,000 or more. I disagree with that and I think it's wrong. Well, we can argue the numbers. Let's say if they made 50,000, would you agree with it then? I'd have to look, you're seeing a, you're seeing a two parent household making $50,000. Right, would you agree with the tax credit, the extension at that point? Would you agree with it then? I'd wanna know what the mother wanted to do because what- Let's we, say if they make 30,000, would you agree with it then? Well, the thing is only- What six, if they made 20,000, would you agree with it then? Only 6% of women say that they would prefer to put their child in daycare versus- If it cost a thousand a month for daycare, right? Mm-hmm. Would you be okay with a subsidy for a family that made 20,000 a year? I would need to look at the specifics of what this family wants, but I would be much more inclined to- We're talking about a policy. I'm talking about a family and, and the okay. desire- A policy that a family can opt into. If they don't want it, they don't have to get it, but if- there's a policy that says, if you make 20,000, I'm just giving you numbers because I want to see where your heart is at in this. If you make $20,000 a year and you have to pay for daycare, mm-hmm. is this a good policy for us to subsidize some or all of that cost? Well, for that specific family, especially if they're an at-risk family, we've, we've looked at the studies. We found that for some at-risk families, That could be a good thing, but the reality is this package, what Joe Biden is proposing, (laughs) is way above that situation. All right, Um, let me me correct you on one thing. I'm sorry. Let me correct you on something, okay? Do you know what the number one driver of inflation actually is? There are lots of variables. What's the number one driver? Every noted economist would tell you the number one driver of inflation is this. Do you know what that is? Money supply. It's the supply chain, it's the basic rule of supply and demand. It's the cost of production. The more expensive the cost of production, then inflation starts to trickle in the wrong direction, right? So that's your number one catalyst. But you said on this show that it's actually federal government intervention or federal intervention. And what we've seen based on practical implementation is that the federal government is actually very successful at being able to, it doesn't mean they always do it, but they are able to slow inflation with decreases in interest rates, etc. These are things, these are tools that economists say the government should utilize to make sure inflation slows down or is stopped altogether. But we also know that there's a natural marketplace correction. Inflation is a reality, you have to have a marketplace correction when inflation takes place. So this happens pretty routinely. What I don't understand, Ms. Sheffield, is how you all have a policy or a policy agenda that is so antithetical to the investment of humans. I don't understand that because it should be very clear if there's a family making under a certain amount per year, all of their income, all of their income, has to go to these services. All of their income has to go to just living. They have no disposable income. And since they have no disposable income because they don't make a lot of money, would it not make sense for that phase of their lives? 
for the government to give them back some of the money that they've been paying into the taxation system all of those years. Well, in many respects, they already are because the top 1% pays, I don't know, in the range of 30 to 40% of all taxes, and the bottom 50% pays far less than their percentage of the population. So they already are getting a subsidy, first of all, first and foremost. <laughs> that is interesting. Second, it's a fact. And then, secondly, so you think that rich people, rich people pay their fair share of taxes? You think that? I'm saying they pay it disproportionate to their population. That's you think Donald Trump paid his fair share of taxes? So I think the question of what is fair has to do with what's known as the Laffer curve by the economist Art Laffer. And he said the curve is the curve is where on the X and Y axes is the amount of government spending and the amount of taxation. And there's an optimal point. So there is an optimal point where you need some taxations, you need defense, you need roads, you need things like that. But but there is an optimal point at which it drops off, and each additional uh, you know unit of taxation will make things less efficient in the marketplace. So that's hmm. what the tension is. So well, tell me where that has been tried and proven. Tell me where that theory has been tried and proven. Where? Uh, well, I used to work at Moody's Investor Service, and I was a bond analyst in the sovereign debt uh, issuance. And the team down the hall was the one that uh, voted and gave the ratings. You know, AAA. I mean, based on. A so country's implementation. Listen to me, Ms. Sheffield. Yeah. Your theory that you just said about taxation and the point and the system of taxation for defense spending, etc. What country has successfully implemented that theory? Good. A good example is Ireland. So Ireland's corporate tax rate is 12.5% right now. And look at the growth rate of Ireland. It's been it's it's been a turnaround story. So they had a big crash in the early you know 2010s. They were part of the pigs, the Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Spain that had a lot of economic problems. But part of how they turned around was that they lowered their corporate tax rate and attracted a lot of businesses, a lot of growth. So the GDP per capita, and I'm talking about median. I'm not talking about just the wealthiest. Median has to do with the average, you know, the 50th percentile. The median income for someone in Ireland has seen a lot of growth because they've been able to do that. So, and that's the, that's the fact of the matter is because some other countries in Europe, they've got a higher tax rate than us, but they're also a lot poorer than us. So if you're if you're poor or middle class in America, you would be middle class or rich in Europe. And that's ultimately what it comes down to is this theory of whether you believe that people should be more equally poor okay. or I'm running out of time. I definitely, I definitely understand your answer. Would you consider Ireland to be strongly socialistic? They have some very interesting. There, in some ways, this is a simple question. You just bragged about Ireland. Would yeah. you consider Ireland to be a country steeped in socialism? No, I wouldn't. No, they're not socialistic. No, I mean okay. they, they have. Madam, I, I would I'd definitely ask you to research. The, yeah, no, the system, great, the great, democracy uh, of Ireland. Yeah, no, there, there's a great, uh, the Heritage Foundation every year puts out a, a ranking of all the countries based on, okay. it's not just tax rates. There's lots of other things like property protection, right. uh, regulation. Uh, so once you put that whole mix, uh, a lot of countries even like Sweden and a lot of the, the countries that Bernie Sanders says is their model. Some of them are actually more free than the US according to their own ranking. So it, it's a package deal, you can't just look at the tax rates. Well, that's my point, that's my point. So yeah. when you brag about Ireland, remember Ireland 
they have some very positive, they also have some negative still as well. And they are a transitioning country as it relates to their politics and economy. But it is a mixed bag. So you don't have some great capitalistic nation. Remember, my question to you was, where is this being, that theory, where is it being implemented? You can't find one, not in the purest okay, form. Well, let me give there, you, there's, let no, me. there's no purity for that implementation. All right, I just pulled them up. Ireland, yep. this is according to the Heritage Foundation annual rankings. They're number five in freedom, in economic freedom. The United States is number 26. So they okay, are. What the hell? Okay, listen, the Heritage Foundation, get real. Uh, economic freedom, what the hell does that mean? That's not an actual economic uh, variable that anybody can interpret outside of the context of what the Heritage Foundation deems to be economically free. So come on now. You got to do better than that, uh, Michelle. Well, here, here are their, their criteria property rights, judicial effectiveness, government integrity, business freedom, labor freedom, monetary freedom, tax burden, government spending, fiscal health, trade freedom, investment freedom, and financial freedom. So that you've got- It's based on, and Ms. Sheffield, in all due respect, the Heritage Foundation, they created their own matrix to say, here are the things that are important to us, and here's how we would judge them. Once again, you cannot dismiss the reality that Ireland is still steeped in a lot of socialistic elements, and it makes that economy what it is. You cannot dismiss the fact that Ireland does have significant regulation, that Ireland does engage in more philanthropy based on their dollars, percentage wise more so than the United States of America. You can't dismiss those facts. When you brag about Ireland, you have to brag about all of it if you want to brag about an entire country. Before we go, are you for any dynamic inside of the Build Back Better plan at all? When you say dynamic, you mean like a specific policy proposal? Yeah. Well, we actually have a plan at Independent Women's Forum about paid leave and we call it earned leave. Yep. So we have a lot of issues with the way that the Biden administration is putting forth their plan on this. So I would- But, you, but there's some synergy there. There's a little bit of synergy there. So the, the way we look at it is that this is something it's earned leave. So women should be able to, okay. like you said, it pull Are out the money. Words? It's the I'm same sorry? thing, right? Are we arguing words? It's the same thing, right? Well, the way we would do it is it would be you would get the money now as opposed to later on. You would you would retire earlier or you would have some okay. other way All right. be, your income would be. That's really interesting. So here's some of the things that I would hope that you all can agree to. Extend the child tax credit, paid family and medical leave, lower child care costs, lower the cost of higher education and training. Um, close the Medicaid coverage gap. Um, those are things that we should be able to find some common ground on, okay? And next time we can debate those specific policies cause the way stuff is going, it won't be passed by the next time you come on the show anyway, all right? You're right about that. <laughs> all right, thank you so much, Ms. Sheffield. I appreciate you being on the show. I appreciate it. I always enjoy the exchange. Same here.